Well, hey there, everybody. I hope your week has been enjoyable so far, and if it hasn't been, I hope that this episode of the Race by Whoops fake radio show can help cheer you up a little. So grab a beverage in your favorite container. I'm partial to a Punky Brewster collectible cup full of flat ginger ale because it reminds me of childhood when I hadn't yet realized what a miserable and wretched world this was, and enjoy the show. You may be wondering why I'm doing the introduction this week and not Andrew. Well, Andrew happens to be on a bike trip for the next month or so with his wife Tiffany and their dog Pele. I don't think I'm telling tales out of school here. I believe he has mentioned this trip in a previous episode. But if it was a secret, Andrew and Tiffany, I'm sorry. Anyway, if you two happen to be listening from the road, I sincerely hope you're having a blast out there. Okay, moving right along here, you'll be glad to know that the introduction is the only thing I'm doing this week because Andrew recorded one last story before he left. It's called Setiendra's Wager. I hope I said that right. And it's a beautifully woven tale that touches on Pascal's Wager, karma, karmic debt, tumbleweeds, and being a good and kind person for the sake of being a good and kind person. You'll love it, trust me. And one more thing before I turn it over to Andrew. As summer winds down and Labor Day approaches, I've been feeling a bit nostalgic about a Labor Day weekend tradition that was a part of my childhood for many years, and I felt like sharing it with all of you out there in the ether. I would normally just recount it to a friend, but the only one I have happens to be away on a bike trip. Every Labor Day weekend as a child and into my teens, my parents and I would head over to the community fairgrounds in a neighboring village for an end-of-summer celebration. I've mentioned before that I grew up in the hinterlands of eastern Ontario, Canada, so this festival was mostly attended by bush dwellers and local yokels. The centerpiece of the weekend was an old-timer softball tournament where men and women over the age of 40 would divide up into teams and compete for a chance at recapturing former glory. While most of the adult attendees were getting blind drunk and playing ball or else spectating, the children of these adults were bombing around on ATVs and bicycles, terrorizing each other and the residents of the town who didn't feel like joining the festivities. It wasn't all disorderly bedlam, though. There were semi-organized games and events for the kids as well. My favorite was the frog jumping competition. The kids who wanted to participate, and I always did, would get up early on Saturday morning and try to catch the fastest and most competent frog we could find. I say competent because ideally, the frog would be smart enough to hop toward the finish line and not off in another direction. After catching our frogs, we would spend the morning and early afternoon keeping them wet and training them for the race. At 2 p.m. sharp, we'd gather in the outfield grass of one of the ball diamonds not in use and line up our frogs for the race. It was simple, as we were. There was a starting line and a finish line. Whoever's frog crossed the finish first won. I think there were ribbons and a $5 bill for first place. I looked forward to that event all year, and I think I even won once or twice. At around 5 p.m. on the Saturday and Sunday, the ball tournament and the children's games would wind down for the day, and we would congregate in the community center for a chicken barbecue. After we ate and discussed the day's events, which would always involve a few injuries and near deaths, the adults would gather on the main street and dance to country music until the early hours of the morning, while us kids would either go home, sleep in our parents' cars, or, if we were a bit older, stay around for the dance. Other than the frog jumping competition, these dances were the most action-packed part of the weekend. 
After spending the day drinking and getting sunburned, the adults would continue the debauchery into the evening, and you could always count on a drunken dust-up or five. Sometimes, one of my uncles or cousins would be involved as well, and I'd have a rooting interest. The championship game of the ball tournament was held on Labor Day afternoon, and after it was played, we'd all go home tired and full of dread over the upcoming school year and work week. It was an eventful and memorable way to cap off the summer, but at the same time, I still carry scars from some of the redneck shit I witnessed and experienced. What else can one expect, I guess, from a backwoods party with unlimited alcohol? Okay, this is supposed to be Andrew's week, so I'm going to shut up now. Please enjoy the story, and rate, review, and subscribe if you're able to. Thanks, and we'll talk to you soon. Blown about by howling Santa Ana winds, as a man bent over to scoop up a pungent pile of dog shit, a high wind-driven tumbleweed found its forward progress interrupted by the man's face. Later, noticing a patch of dried blood on his cheek, his wife asked what happened. His response? I just paid off a tiny portion of my karmic debt. Got me thinking. Another squall-powered tumbleweed, this one representing patterns of thought, bounced willy and nilly through my brain. Chasing after it, trying not to crush it pointlessly underfoot, led me to consider the following absurdities. Absurdities which I present with apologies to any and all people of faith who have somehow not managed to develop thick skin. First, I found myself thinking of Blaise Pascal, a man who seems to have only ever been painted while striking at least a little side-eye, a man celebrated for his brilliance, if not his looks. When not busy throwing slightly surprised and sardonic expressions at painters, Pascal was deep in the non-tumbling weeds of a singular genius. While struggling to explain advanced models of probability theory, the concept of infinity, the justification of a belief in God, and a host of other remarkably original thoughts, Pascal laid out a lifetime worth of ideas, collected over volumes of books. While superior thinkers take a greater interest in his work in geometry and existentialism, the common Goomba like me is most likely familiar with a single passage distilled from a vast collection. That passage you may know of as Pascal's Wager. The popularized version of this bit of cheeky philosophy states that Men are basically gambling with their souls when it comes to one's belief in the existence of God. In other words, Pascal believed it best to act as if God exists, regardless of whether or not he does. Essentially hedging one's bet just in case God leaps out from behind an atom the moment the show is over, saying, Ha! Gotcha! As the tumbleweed drifted along, I found myself thinking about how Pascal's wager relates to karma. I'm uncertain if Satyendra Bose or any of the multitude of brilliant Indian mathematicians and philosophers ever posited any equivalent theories. Is there any reason for a gambler's purse to lay at the base of the great wheel of karma? On the off chance no such theory exists, I'd like to throw the following idea into the ring. I'd like to start by saying I've personally not taken Pascal's wager. Like everyone else, I cannot be certain about God's existence. 
If he does manage to leap out from the cake of my death, I'd like to be able to be honest with him. I'd like to tell him my lack of faith was not born of my convictions. Rather, I was just flat out not convinced one way or the other. On my way to the gates of hell, I may find myself explaining, through an endless list of questions, that belief in the Almighty is not something I could fake. And why are the only two options eternal life or eternal damnation? They're both awful if you think about it. Besides, what's the use in trying to trick a guy who already knows all your moves? At least I'll deliver my plea with a straight face and the touch of dignity only available to the incorruptibly damned. I'd also like to add, my lack of belief does not influence how I currently treat others. The influences on this aspect of my character are slightly more complex. In other words, I've got no chips on the table when it comes to my belief in God. I'm just passing through the casino looking for hookers in the buffet, and occasionally stopping to help an old person carry their oxygen tank. Metaphorically speaking, of course. But when it comes to karmic gambling, I'm considerably less reluctant to hold back my wager. In fact, I'm willing to go all in on certain aspects of the karmic bet, as the consequences for being right or wrong are similar enough to make the risk seem not so risky. There is one bit of the concept of karma I'm not so keen on, though. The idea of possessing a reincarnated soul. I'm pretty sour on the concept of an infinitely sustained existence. Frankly, it scares the shit out of me, even if it involves occasionally coming back as a squirrel or a hummingbird. Personally, I think more people should fear infinity. It's fucking terrifying. Consider it. The idea of being indefinitely prolonged, passing through various bodies and beings until, without a definitive guidebook or a set of instructions, you finally get it right. And by it, I mean the very act of existing. This existence is not one I'd like to know was true, even if it were. So, contrary to what I said several sentences ago, this is a belief I choose not to hold out of sheer distaste for the idea. Never mind the rank existential terror of infinite heaven or hell and what that does for my anxiety level. In fact, I like to mitigate anxiety wherever possible. Avoiding thinking of the inescapable wheel of life, death, and rebirth helps me in that struggle. I guess I see babies in the bathwater here, so making up my own faith siphon is my way of handling the bet. And apologies for the blending of metaphor. Feel free to ignore the image of squeaky clean gambling babies, which surely must be slipping and sliding through your mind. Speaking of making shit up, the way I reconcile the idea of karma is fairly straightforward, thanks to some creative shaving and imagination. As I see it, keeping up with karma's permanent record must require a dispassionate, cosmic, and all-knowing scorekeeper of good and dirty deeds. This scorekeeper must be handing out punishments and rewards based solely on the behavior of the inmates of our universe, more or less at random times, with no guarantee that the balance will ever be fully sorted out to the liking of any living being. The most confounding part of it is that the whole game starts from the moment of your first conscious move and ends sometime around your last. Obviously, that's a horseshit definition of karma, and any Hindu or Buddhist who has managed to listen this far probably just hops straight off the program. And fair enough. For those of you who have remained, let's consider this dispassionate, cosmic, and all-knowing scorekeeper for a moment. You may be asking yourself, well, how is this scorekeeper not the same as Pascal's God? My answer is it always is in relation to questions of God is simple. I just don't know. It very well could be, which would cause all manner of confusion for everyone. But on the off chance that the scorekeeper isn't God with a capital G, 
and the end result of karmic justice is not eternal, I find myself somewhat more inclined to roll the dice on karma and hope I split the zeros at least. All I need to get behind is the idea that in life, karma might be real. Accepting that, there is every reason in the world to lay down one's bet that not being a shithead is one worth covering. Giving one every reason in the world to dish out kindness instead. Even if you take the Pascal-esque tact and tie your horse strictly to the self-preservation post, dealing kindness for the hope of kindness repaid or avoiding shittiness for fear of payback, believing in my entirely fabricated version of the great karmic accountant in the sky makes at least as much sense as believing in Pascal's God to prevent one's testicles from roasting in hell for all eternity. Just imagine, if you're currently without testicles, how much worse that punishment would be for you. One minute, no testicles. The next, they're on fire. Welcome to hell, genitals. I'll wrap this up. If you haven't noticed, the thread is getting a bit loose. Pondering the idea of paying a karmic debt via a random tumbleweed to the face led me to consider how and why I do some of my moral reckoning. I clearly don't really believe in karma. But I figure that I do not choose to place my clearly fictitious karmic bet solely out of hope for something nice to follow my kindness or for fear of something awful following my dickishness. I reckon I choose this bogus white boy college sophomore version of karma because the project of human solidarity is just worth the effort and made easier by being kind as often as possible regardless of the reason you put behind it. I choose Satyendra's wager because I like a good story. And this one has so many plot holes that I can fill up a lifetime, just the one please, with rewrites and edits. I'll be scribbling this fiction as I rack up sweet guy deposits and write countless shithead checks, all the while hoping for the final balance to land me deep in the black. And by black I mean having both a positive balance and an afterlife as metaphorically black with non-experience as a boy can earn by simply being nice.
Thanks for tuning in to the Raised by Whoops fake radio show. This is Glenn. Both Andrew and I are grateful for your time and attention. If you enjoyed that story, we'd appreciate if you could tell your friends, family, or even a few strangers about the show. Additionally, you can leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. If you have a short story you'd like us to tell, or even some music you'd like to share, you can reach out via the website, raisedbywhoops.com. We're glad to have you with us. Until next time, thanks. Take care. Get me.